Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media a content events and training platform providing success strategies and resources for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Firstly, a quick announcement. I get a lot of people contacting me asking how they can work with me. So this is a little plug to let you know that I offer a range of services to vegan and plant-based business owners and entrepreneurs. From online training and group coaching to PR, content creation and copywriting services and one-on-one tailored individual private consultations. So if you're wanting help to promote or grow your vegan business, brand, product, service, book or other creative project, head over to veganbusinessmedia.com and click on the Work With Me menu link for more details. Now for the main part of the show. In this episode, I interview Sam Dennigan, the founder and CEO of Strong Roots, an Irish plant-based frozen food brand. Founded in 2015, Strong Roots has seen rapid growth in the UK, including being the first frozen food brand, apart from ice cream, to be stocked in Harrods, which is considered to be the UK's most prestigious and upmarket store where the royals shop. The frozen food brand has also recently launched into the US market in Wegmans, Target and Whole Foods and secured more than $18 million in funding from investors Good Partners who've also backed cult clothing brand Supreme and high street favourite All Saints. Sam has decades of experience in the food business, having grown up working for his family's fruit and vegetable distribution company, yet he failed at launching two other brands before founding Strong Roots. Sam is committed to building a sustainable brand and he's implemented several environmentally efficient practices into the business, including being on course for all packaging to be 100% recyclable this year. That's 2020 if you're listening in the future. In this interview, which was recorded before the current COVID-19 coronavirus crisis, Sam discusses the major mistakes he made and what he learned from his previous brand launch failures, how the Strong Roots products got into Harrods without Sam even realising it had happened, how he raised $18 million in investment to grow the brand, how he knew the company was ready to take on the US market, the key strategy that's led to the brand being successful in competing against the big players in the frozen food category, and much more. Here's the interview with Sam Dennigan from Strong Roots. Hello, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm very keen to dig into your story, your business journey, because it's a very interesting one. I understand you're from Ireland, uh, but you're based at the moment in New York. So we might hear some of the, the traffic in the background from the Big Apple, which is all good. But uh, I always like to kick off with the, the podcast episodes, asking people what their why is. So what are your drivers for doing what you do, um, uh, for doing what you do? What's your, your why behind your business? Sure. Um... 
Well, first and foremost, uh, when I left school, I went into uh, the field of design, art and design, um, because I was obsessed with advertising and brands and the communication arts of of uh, telling people a story and and adding value by by uh, building something on top of visuals um, specifically, and then completely separately to that, uh, I had worked and. Uh, both part-time and full-time in my family's business, which is a uh, fresh produce or fruit and veg business. So kind of concurrently, the both things merged together and I got to share my experience and knowledge of food in particular with agriculture and design at the same time. And and, and Strong Roots uh, was the result of that collision. Got it, got it. So what's your reason for doing Strong Roots? Like, why pick that kind of business? So, um, you know, to be completely honest, when, when I started Strong Roots, it was a culmination of, of mostly experience and doing what I knew how to do. We started the business as a single SKU or single product um, business as something that we saw an opportunity in the market um, matched with, uh, an ability to tell a story with a brand and that stood for something. And having been in the fresh produce industry for so long, um, I saw an opportunity in Frozen to 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 tell an honest story about what the products were. Um, in the uh, in the late noughties um, in the UK, there was obviously the huge uh, horse meat scandal, which in within the frozen um, aisle particularly, which caused huge damage to food retailing in general, um, especially for some of these legacy brands that had been doing the same thing for so long. And I just felt there was an opportunity particular with uh, fruit and veg to tell a, a story about where it came from. And in the business, in my family's business, which was fresh produce, it was nearly impossible to make communication about what, uh, commoditized goods are and you know where they come from and the story of agriculture and the producers and the farmers who who um, uh, produce those crops is incredibly interesting and that's that's one of the main reasons why I started because I wanted to be able to tell a story but I had to find a category that I could do it in and one of the main reasons that we ended up in Frozen was because um, that story is easier because of the lack of perishability in the products but also because of the of the of the great story that there is to tell and, and the multiples of 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 things that that frozen brings in a in a positive way. Great. No, I love that. I love that. I love the way people have got many different routes to doing what they do. Um, and uh, that's 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 great. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I believe um, you actually had two failed businesses or brands before this success. So, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about those? Yeah, so I was I was lucky in that both of my failures were while I was working on someone else's dime, uh, which is always positive. <laughs> Definitely, uh, which was which was which was in the family's business. Um, we did have kind of you know not quite a separate business unit, but obviously kind of a separated uh, focus for the two retail brands that that kind of tried and failed. The first one was a brand called Sam's Potatoes. And Sam's Potatoes was a very simple concept concept of uh, steam in the bag um, 
baby potatoes and baby sweet potatoes for the uh, ultra convenience market of students and um, single people living on their own. Or people like me that are in a couple but allergic to kitchens. (laughs) I'm liking the sound of this product. Carry on. (laughs) And they were were great products. And I think, you know, our our captured audience is much wider than that, obviously. But um, the main reason that that that, that failed was because um, of the the price point that 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 as a commodity um, crop is sold at. Uh, That was in the Irish market. These products were promoted at you know two euros first and then one euros to get traction and uh, there's not a lot of sense left to tell a story about that um once you're you're promoting it at such a great discount um which is you know close to the raw material crop that comes out of the ground right um so that was the first business and it just it 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 still exists in a very small capacity and on the basis of a value line but to consider that the objective of it was to actually add value and um and and differentiation to a range in a market um it, it, it really just exists as a kind of a, a price fighter product today right um the, the second business was a a bigger venture it was the sub licensing of the famous green giant brand um for the entire irish market and with the learnings of the first project the objective was to uh, do something that that had more um, value and and contained a point a huge point of difference as opposed to something that could be quickly commoditized. So that went as far as to uh, develop unique varietals of vegetables, particularly salad vegetables like cucumbers and and peppers, and we developed um, um, varieties of of cherry tomatoes with local Irish producers so that the, um, the proximity to market was very important. And in the, in the attempt to bring this holistically, you know, as close to perfect as possible business within fresh produce and also to, for, the, for the growers and for the distributors and for everyone along the chain to achieve value as well as the consumers, um, one major thing we, we, um, we missed was the, um, not the consumer acceptance, which is unbelievably high, but the customer acceptance. And in a market like Ireland, where the fresh produce business is is owned by private label, why would they accept a brand in? And um, after kind of having a clean sweep of acceptance through the market, once we had developed it, uh, a range of about six products, there was just kind of closed doors behind us. And after a year or two, we kind of had to say that, uh, you know, we've kind of messed up here and not done done a lot of research, but not done it in the right places. So, What do you mean, both, um, Sam? Were, what, what do you mean? Can I just pause you? What did you mean by you got consumer acceptance, but not customer acceptance? So in testing the, the idea for the product, which was... Um, uh, you know, snack pouches for snacking vegetables, which are very mainstream now. This was kind of before, um, almost before uh, whole carrots or batten carrots are sold as snacks uh, across the UK and Ireland. We knew that there was a consumer for a healthy, convenient snack that was done with fresh produce because 
it already existed in some uh, in some element. Yeah, this was about a branded version of that, which cost more because the ingredients and quality was more. Okay. Um, and all of our testing was based on what the consumer wanted. What we failed to uh, test or or ask for was what that was going to, how that was going to affect a predominantly um, owned market by private label. So if if for example in a market where 90% of fresh produce is, is done by um, uh, non-brands, by private label, and, and the control is with retailers to do it, uh-huh. why wouldn't they just do it in private label to a lesser or equal quality? Uh-huh. So what happened was, was that all of the products that we have developed within sort of six months to a year were developed by the producers of those four private label, and they uh-huh. all have had success in the market. That the the um, the issue was was that, that there was no interest in a brand and yeah. therefore no interest in a brand owner. That's so really there was no interesting. For us to grow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. That. I think it's really helpful for people to know that uh, you know not everyone has a success straight out of the park, and you you take that on board. And I think that there's two really obviously really good lessons there about the research. And because especially with businesses, often it is all about the brand. Like obviously with Strong Roots, it's very much about the brand and the story. So it's really important, as you say, to do that research. Um, and because obviously in the second case, it it kind of wasn't about the brand. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that. I think there's lots of good. Lessons learnings there so um yeah, it's, and you stuck what, with what it happens when a market says no yeah yeah really really interesting so yeah thank you um but now you've got strong roots and you're doing really well with that which is fantastic and i love that you didn't give up um which is awesome that's another good lesson um tell us briefly when you first started strong roots what were some of your key challenges and how did you overcome them um initially um i suppose what we were trying to do is we were trying to enter and disrupt the frozen food category at the same time. So we had a product that we were, we believed in wholeheartedly. We had, you know, exclusivity on its supply chain. We had a great brand um, that was seeing like great customer acceptance, but what we didn't have was distribution and what we didn't have because we had, um, we were the first, first in the irish market to actually launch a um a sweet potato fry and in the uk market the first to launch it as a brand um and the complications that come with that are especially when you're when you're talking about something that's so price driven so the perception of the frozen category and the perception of frozen products you know up until relatively recently has been pretty poor uh, we were we were trying to launch a product that was you know 25 to 50 percent um, higher in costs than most of its perceived competitors in in standard potato fries and at the same time as trying to do it into a category that only three or four major players existed in mm-hmm. so um, it was a to be honest we had to get one retailer to take a risk and then we had to deliver on on what we felt unbelievably hopeful about as a as a market leader from the get-go because we had first mover advantage. So it was almost an education and um, a risk for the retailer at the same time. Wow, wow. Fascinating. Obviously, it paid off. Um, and then what happened when one retailer picked it up and the sales did well, then others got on board? Is that right? 
Yeah, it, it, it literally snowballed. So we um, entered into one of the Irish retailers in October um, of 2015. And within nine months, we're placed in 95% of the distribution points in the country. Wow. Now, it's obviously a small country, but there's... Um, there's around about a thousand stores cover that type of distribution, wow. so it was it was very much a, a a big hit, and it was completely driven by consumer pull. You know, we didn't have any budget. Um, the investment that was made was completely personal funds, so it was bootstrapped from the start. Um, that distribution was done with two of us, um, both still in the business, wow. and um, it was very much a uh, all hands uh, on deck, you know, twenty four seven for 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 the first couple of years to make it work, and then with the legitimacy that that brought us in the market to having spotted a trend, we were able to go to the next piece of product development, which was just as much as a hit, and we've been rolling that knowledge now for um, uh, just over four years. Fantastic. And when you say it was very much the retailer took the risk, but then it was very much driven by consumer demand. So did you do your own like marketing to raise awareness of the product? Or was it just that customers saw the new product on the shelf and thought, oh, this looks nice? Um, it was it was very much design based. So one of our hardest working assets to this day has been our, our packaging design. And we developed the packaging to go into a category which was basically designed to look the same um, and to bring footfall to a customer that was going to buy one of the 60 SKUs that any one of the companies had um, within a, um, a very small section within the, the Irish retailers. And what that did was essentially put a big blinking red button in the middle of a sea of black and, and beige. Ah. And our, our, our early success was nearly wholeheartedly down to the fact that we stood out so much differently to everything that was there. And then in addition to that, focused on um, uh, consumer PR as much as possible, talking about taste and carbohydrate alternative and just really educating the consumer in something that they already loved. So consu consumers in the market in Ireland and the UK were able to buy sweet potato fries through the food service avenue with, at restaurants, but not through retail. Right. So it had actually been something that um, was, was being waited for for a long time. So we just popped in with the, with the solution. I love it. And I love that you said that that's a really important point about standing out, especially when there's, like you say, a sea of other products, you've really got to stand out. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I believe you were, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the first frozen food brand in Harrods, is that right? Or the first plant-based frozen food brand in Harrods? Both with the exception of ice cream. Oh, okay. Oh, that's fair enough. That's in a category of its own, isn't it? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us how that came about. How did you how did you get into Harrods? Because I imagine they're quite fussy. Um, I mean, I'm sure our international audience has heard of Harrods. It's like the most poshest um, department store in in the UK. You know, the Queen and everyone you know buys from there. So uh, that they must be quite particular about you know the the brands that they choose. So tell us a little bit about how you got into Harrods. 
Yeah, it's a pretty good story. And I think my my UK sales director, Emma, will actually kill me for saying the honest <laughs> truth about it, but it's too good. It's too good. I'll go I for mean, it. <laughs> we, we, um, we're so proud of this that we have a, a, a pack, the first pack that I bought from Harrods with the receipt and a Harrods bag framed in our loo. Uh, <laughs> I love in, it. In the office. Um, yeah, no, we, we, we started our first ever customer in the UK was a company called Stratford Fine Foods. And we met Stratford Fine Foods because um, we, I, I, had a, I had, a, had a goal and a mission when I started the company that at some point I would be able to sell to, to, to Whole Foods when, when I did a kind of a trade mission uh, before I started the company over to the U.S., years and years ago the first ever whole foods that i went to was in columbus circle in new york and um i was just amazed by how they sold food you know without packaging the fresh produce section and brands and every other part and you know huge innovation in comparison to uh what we saw at that time in in ireland and the uk it's changed a lot now yeah. but um the reason that uh um uh, came about is because uh, Stratford Fine Foods was servicing our account in um, in Whole Foods. They're our distributor for that business because um, there are lots of uh, brands that go into Whole Foods, but there's not that many that service the freezer. And Stratford were an expert in ice cream. So we figured out that um, uh, if they do ice cream, they could do sweet potato fries and so on. So um, we had been plaguing Whole Foods, you know, doing things like calling up to the office with coffees unannounced and you know bringing products over literally flying it over from ireland to literally just doorstep and then trying it in because is this is to the I uk felt, you were flying it from this is whole foods in I'm, the uk you're in, talking about isn't in it kensington high street yeah yeah, yeah. i know I, the one i know, I know the one <laughs> yeah it's, it's just an amazing store and it is and, yeah um, miguel who runs that to be fair to him has been unbelievably helpful to us over the years and, and i really I knew that if we were going to have any chance in the UK market coming from Ireland as a small company with one year under our belt, that if we didn't go to Whole Foods in Kensington first, we'd never have, have a shot. So we did, and we did. And as a result of that relationship with Stratford, believe it or not, we didn't even know that we were listed in Harris. No way, <laughs> really? Oh, my God. Yeah. The so they got was, so they got you in basically the distributor absolutely wow. absolutely uh, yeah and obviously you know unbelievably important and something that we we really value but um it, it uh it happened as a result of of um i suppose the the prestige that comes from from elsewhere and we had worked with them to do whole foods but as well as partridges which is a another store with a royal warrant and other places like that wow. so um Amazing. yeah we were just focusing on what we were good at that's fantastic i love that so i'm hearing a lot of relationships very much connecting absolutely. networks and relationships absolutely now you you went from ireland into the uk and now of course you're in the us um how did you know you were ready because breaking the us market as, as you know can be you know very very tricky um how did you get into that and how did you know you were ready to hit that us market so um three years ago now it used to be two years and i'm trying to figure it now Oh, it's much longer than that now. Th three years ago, um, I, I sat down to, to make this timeline so that I could try and explain to the then team of maybe seven people at that point 
um, what I wanted to do or what I wanted the business to do, what, 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 what our vision should be. And it had Ireland, UK, Europe, and USA on the on the on the timeline, and I had literally broken down with a I think it was a five year plan at the time, it and put them at various different points in the five year plan, and I said, look, this is what we we are striving for. How do we get there? And just tried to build literally a timeline of what would have to happen if this was to be the case. So. Initially, you know, half half a year into the UK, um, we were trading with Whole Foods and a few other smaller independents and, and Waitrose at that point only. We started building out this big audacious plan to, to conquer the world. And then <laughs> in the middle of that, actually realized that um, with the traction that we were getting in other markets, that taking the focus off them might be actually detrimental. And, you know, things simple things like you know the massive cost of doing business in in the uk were obviously something that was focusing us at the time so we decided that instead of you know trying to service all these markets concurrently that we would do what we hadn't had the budget to do before uh, which was do research and do a lot of research and we got grants um from the local enterprise offices in Dublin and uh, we won a couple of entrepreneurial competitions to give us more budget and all of the cash that we won that we didn't necessarily need in the business at that time we just put into research and about 50% if not more was put into the US market and asking the question of do we have a place does our product work does our brand work you know what does the consumer want where is the food trends going so we spent two years doing various different types of, of research in that market um, before getting to the realization that actually we do have a place, but we'd need a shed load of money to do it as well. So um, that kind of brought us through to, to last year. But um, it was it was answered by the consumer, not by us. Nice. Uh, if the consumer had said no interest, then it, it wouldn't have been a goal. And that's the way we've run the business since the start. It's it, does the consumer want this? Um, if if yes, great. If not, we steer away. And and sometimes we think, you know, should we have gone that direction? But um, if the consumer continues to lead us, I think we'll we'll be all right. Definitely, I love that. I love that you've taken those learnings from the previous uh, business, like you said, where you didn't weren't able to necessarily, you know, do do as much research. So that's brilliant. Now you touched on funding there, which is great. So I understand the business has been funded to date, like you bootstrapped, you know, with your your personal savings, and you just mentioned yeah. that you got grants and um, uh, and won yeah. competition. So I think that's really useful for people to hear that because often people go, "Oh, I need money. I must get an investor," and straight, and maybe an investor is right, but not necessarily immediately. So I just want to kind of pause there to, you know, make sure people yeah. hear that, that, you know, there are other ways to raise money. And like you say, yeah. grants and competitions can be good. Now, I understand that, that recently you got an $18 million Series A investment round and you attracted some of the, uh, some quite mainstream investors um, who've backed mm-hmm. a clothing brand called Supreme and a high street, a popular high street company, All Saints. Um, how did you secure this investment and what do you think attracted investors to your brand we uh, i mean you mentioned something there that's worth 
going back to touch on, which is, um, you know, when do you know you need an investor? And, and you know, I had started asking that question in, in year two, and um, the answer was, you don't. Um, we were working with various different banking institutions very successfully. Uh, I think banking has changed a lot. I think it has a lot more to go, but I think a lot of people can sometimes knee-jerk into uh, selling um, some equity too early, and most of the time it's before the business has even been proven. Um, so the best advice I got at that stage was, you're too early. I'd love to take your money, but um, go and go and show the world that you can do this rather than just one person, because it would be easy for you to get investment, but you need more people to believe. And as a result of that, we just had to find it elsewhere. So between banking products and, you know, a bit more bootstrapping, we got to a point where we actually did our investment at a point in time where, you know, we still own the whole company. And and that made a huge difference when you're sitting there being happy or unhappy about what the terms are. Because um, when, when we sat down to to do the deal with uh, good partners, um, I was really happy about it. I'm still happy about it. Uh, I picked the people over the money. And I think if I'd been in a position where I had to had to get money one which way or the other, uh, you know, you, you end up doing a bad deal. Um, yeah, it's a good point. Very good point. So, so I mean, the reason that um, investors like good partners are interested in, in, in a business like ours is, I think, mostly to do with the fact that, you know, we've built something that's tangible and not a Ponzi scheme. It's something that, you know, we buy and sell and add value in the center um, in a different way than anyone else. And I'd like to think that, the, you know, our USP, which stands further than anything, like there's lots of good things about the business, but uh, to, 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 to reference a point of one of your previous podcasts, uh, people want taste. And oh, yes. What, I've said that many what, a time. Yeah. 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 And, and sometimes that comes at a cost. But, but with us, it doesn't because we're selling vegetables that are naturally flavored and don't have to add anything in. You don't have to do anything with them. You know, if you're, if you're using a cooking process and a preservation method, which doesn't require all of the nasty things that we don't want to see in food yeah. and they taste great, you're onto a winner. And Absolutely. We, everything we do is underpinned by does it taste great? Because it might be a great idea or it might be a, a growing sector or vertical or category or whatever you want but if it doesn't taste great it's not it's so that's, true that's I've, yeah i've said that several times on the show because it's like it doesn't matter it can be as healthy as possible it can be as sustainable as possible it can be as vegan as possible or as ethical as possible yeah. but if it don't taste good people aren't going to eat yeah. it um so just yeah, on people that will I, only yeah. buy cardboard once exactly that's a great quote <laughs> that's very good I love that um, so and another aspect on it of your business as well as obviously being 100% plant-based is um, you're you're very good on sustainability so I understand that you are committed to regener regenerative farming including uh, yep. reusing rainwater using veg re vegetable waste the peels from yep. carrots onions and other vegetables which I believe are transformed into biogas that's used to transform yep. gas into energy 
energy and the energy is then used to freeze and steam the vegetables um that's really cool and apparently i think by well we're now in 2020 uh, so this year you're planning to have all your packaging 100 percent recyclable so tell us about these sustainability options because often when brands implement sustainability measures that often pushes the price of the product up so tell us a little bit about how you've managed to implement these sustainability measures and I guess still you know have a successful product that you can sell um, and that customers will buy it's not easy is the answer and there's also not a single solution it's not something that you can just subscribe to and it be checkboxed. I think a lot of the big CPG companies are great at saying that they're doing this by a certain year and then that year keeps getting pushed out or mm-hmm. the percentage yeah. of their business gets changed. We, you know, as I said earlier, like, you know, we're 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 not we're not vegan activists. We are business people. But one thing that is absolute is that that purpose-driven part of our business that we we know we can and therefore we should try and change things for the better and we have this you know this piece of strategy work that we're working on at the minute which is not fully complete called uh, consumer packaged goods rather than goods and i think there's a better way for companies to do business just because um um that that isn't being done at the moment. And I think companies that are focused on a kind of a short-term turnaround and exit are not going to be the ones that can change an industry. And, and that's what we're about. It's about changing an industry for the better. So um, I'm just going to pause there because I went on a tangent. Oh, no, that's all right. So I'm just curious about the how you're managing to the- um, Sorry, yeah. do that with the pricing so it's great because I know a lot of companies go yeah we want to be super super sustainable but then they find oh we're using this packaging that's going to bump that's expensive therefore we've got to bump either bump the price of the product up or we've got to have a lower yeah. profit so just talk a little bit about how you're kind of managing to balance that yeah. so there's a number of ways in in which we can do this you know one of one of our efforts in the last 18 months has been that um, we wanted to remove all non-recyclable plastics from uh, from our supply chain. Um, we found a plastic composite called LDPE4, and that is, you know, essentially the only non-recyclable soft plastic which can be um, brought to recycle centres. The problem is, is that in in, a, in, in various different countries. Um, the the resources and the infrastructure isn't set up to actually recycle those things so a lot of them end up being burnt or brought to landfill even though that they can be recycled so um you know we had to take that step even further and say okay well what are the materials that can be composted you know if they end up in landfill or they end up in burning side which are the ones that are going to do the least amount of damage and you, you turn to cardboard and then you realize that food safe cardboard is waxed or has a laminate layer on it, but actually mm. means that it's going to be composted slower. So when when we set our charter out to go and actually make a difference, we only started uncovering all of the problems within the recycling industries, um, uh, within the recycling industry. So um, we're still on that track to try and remove as much packaging as possible over time. Mm. 
I think one of the ways that we're doing it, in addition to the two things that I've just said, like, I mean, cardboard is definitely a, a better, more sustainable solution. So we've started moving all of our burger products in America have already moved on to that. Our future development products are already moving over onto a um, recyclable cardboard. And then in the future, I think it's about a an industry-wide effort to actually try and take as much plastic out of the system um, as they put in. So, you know, there's been huge developments around PET for reuse um, by essentially melting down the plastic and, and using it multiple times over a cycle of, you know, six or seven before it's it, it can't be used. And ultimately, then trying to figure out how we remove packaging from the whole equation. Mm. Um, but, you know, if we're going to be honest about it, we see the same problems as all of the other big companies see, but we're not stopping to try and find a solution in as small a way as we, we possibly can as a early stage startup company. There is no one solution. And, and the companies who are developing compostable films or uh, compostable papers, you know, when you look down the supply chain, there's actually most of that going uh, into the same scenario as it was before. So it's a huge problem and um, one that we're, we're trying to solve yeah. uh, all the time, but one that hasn't been solved for anyone. So do you have to price your products to be a little bit higher and then educate the consumer about the fact that they're up higher because you're sustainable or do you just kind of wear it in terms of your profits? So far, um, we haven't made price increases to the consumer on this basis. And if, it, but if it's something where uh, the complete removal of plastic, for example, is, is something where that could be uh, a scenario. The, the other way of looking at this, which is, is rarely discussed, is that the value that we put on food and the erosion of the price because of, of consumerism has dropped severely over time. Now, depending on what part of the world you're in, that, right. that, 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 that varies massively. But there is, a, there is a value on good food, which um, v consumers are willing to pay. And I think our products sit in a much more premium uh, price point than most within Frozen and actually as a result of the understanding of what we're doing and what we put on packs and what our fan base perceives us to be, they're already paying a premium for what we do versus the, the, the product that's sitting beside us. Yeah. So that's already understood by the consumer and, and, and that's why we owe it to them to make sure that that, that, that remains as opposed to gets eroded over time. Yeah, got it. Um, just a couple of questions, and the on in terms of the marketing, or you know, like you said, getting your your kind of your products out there. And I know you mentioned you're not a vegan activist; you're business people. I just want to put it out there: one can definitely be both. So we do have. I think that a business, actually, a for purpose business, is a form of activism because you're taking stand, especially yep. when you're doing it in a genuine way, like not greenwashing or you know vegan washing, yep. what have you. Um, but interesting. So in terms of the word vegan or plant based in your marketing materials. Um, tell yeah. us about your use of terminology or lack of, like, do you tend to go because plant-based is kind of popular at the moment? Like, are you using that? Do you use the word vegan at all? Like, tell us a little bit about your, yeah, your, your ideas well, around well, that for, terminology. First of all, we definitely split the centre of business and vegan activism. So we, we, we believe that 
reducing and you know this is um based on various different scientific studies that have been done so not not far from opinion which you'll obviously know but the reduce the reduction of uh, meat consumption in favor of pulses and vegetables and and um uh, plant-based crops grown is necessary um, for the future of availability of food, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, yeah. um, and and physical and mental health. So, in in understanding that there is a a mass consumer who doesn't believe that, we service as a gateway to plant-based consumption of people who can help convert. Uh, at least some of the time, people over to eating less uh, animal products and more uh, plant-based products. Um, the reason we ended up with um, uh, that position is because of the consumer. Um, the consumer was looking at what we did, and uh, both on social media and in-store, and reaching out to us, particularly the vegan community, to ask how we could do it better, how we could service... Uh, more people in a mass way, in our way, um, without isolating anybody. And I think a lot of the time with very niche or narrow focused brands on the vegan community, sometimes um, the, 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 the carnivore, to reference another one of your podcasts, fee- feel that isolation, rightly or wrongly so. And what we do as a brand is service everyone and make it easier for conversion to happen. So whether it's stealth or not, we're striving for the same thing. Yeah. Um, in, so do in as, you in as do much you, of an accessible way as possible? Got it. So do you state like you know like the UK Vegan Society has got a trademark, for example, and even some big companies yeah, even members, here in Australia yeah. are um, you know they'll have that like vegan little, even if it's in little letters. So do you do you have anything like that so that for you know people who aren't yet vegan you know they're not going to be put off for by they might not even see it but the vegans like me who will pick up something and turn around and look at the look at the packaging for something to tell mm-hmm. me that this is for me it's there so yep. what what do you do there do you have anything on your packaging or anything that says yeah we're we're, we're members of the vegan society oh. and every single one of our products is vegan and nice. they all hold the emblem that you're talking about oh, as well as oh, interesting, all, right? as well as uh you know, non-GMO and celiac society, and oh, nice, our, our, nice. Yeah, no. Our, well, our I have to tell a friend are... of mine, a good friend of mine in the UK, who I've known for years and years, and she's celiac and vegan. I'll have to tell her to look out for your brand. <laughs> yeah, definitely, please. Brilliant. Do. Okay, so just that's brilliant. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, so, just a final question: What's your your long term vision for yourself and your brand? So, you've just got this eighteen million dollars. What are you going to do with it? What's what's happening for the future? Anything you'd like to share with us? Um, yeah, that the, the funding is to grow. It's to grow rapidly and exponentially, and um, it's to bring these messages to uh, the wider world. You know, particularly in the UK and the US, um, there are fastest growing markets and are are also our biggest opportunities. And um, we we still sit in a tiny, tiny percentage of consumer homes and. Success for us is, you know, principally household penetration. We we want to exist frequently in your shopping basket uh, as much as possible. And if 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 we're striving to do that, uh, we have to stay relevant. Um, you know, we have to 
stay being innovative over over a long period of time and um that means both from a product point of view but also from an ethos point of view and you know we set up the business to become you know a global household name and we're really only at the beginning of that journey so um yeah that's um that, I love, that's the I love kind that. of long-term plan i'm just curious i will ask you one other question because it's just kind of popped into my mind is so you've got this product it's basically vegetables and you know it's yep. not like it's one of these high-tech next-gen um, you know, yeah. things like Beyond and Impossible, et cetera. But what's going to happen, because a lot of supermarkets do this, they'll have a brand in their, you know, in their shelves or in their frozen department, wherever it is. And if it does well, what they will sometimes do is ditch that particular brand and kind of make their yeah. own version of it, you know, like a mm-hmm. Tesco's own or a Waitrose or whatever. Is that a risk for you? And how would how are you going to mitigate that kind of risk? Or And, and how will you, yeah, stand apart so that even if they did that, you would still be successful so so our mission is to create um uh, plant-based environmentally responsible um food products for everyone for now so the for everyone for now piece changes over time and to be able to stay contemporary and current you know you have to change as you go and i think a lot of the big cpg companies have 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 stalled with single products that have been hugely successful and grown exponentially within single categories, but then stopped and stopped innovation because profitability is there. You know, I, you know, live and do this on a day-to-day basis because I love the innovation. I love changing trends and I love the, the, the development of what's next. So I think in order to stay relevant and in order to avoid commoditization and me too products, and 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 white label development which is are all the things that you're talking about you know we have to we have to be able to change constantly and bring out new products and new ideas and new categories that 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 allow us to do that so it, you know what our goal for the business is to become a platform brand or a kite mark for plant-based consumption in multiple categories we're currently sitting in frozen food but our objectives are, you know, things like chilled, ambient snacking, um, you know, fresh, various different parts of the of the supermarket, where it's always understood and known and trusted. What we do is great and positive for both planet and personal health. I so love that. Yeah. It, it's about staying relevant and and and, and making sure that um, your consumer, you you change with your consumer through their lives um, the same as the business. I love that. I think that's such brilliant advice to end on because it is like sometimes people get wedded to a particular product and that's kind of, that's it. Um, and I love the fact that I love your little quote there. That's your second good quote, the cardboard, what was it? People only eat cardboard once. I love that. You should use that on your social. Um, and the other <laughs> one is what you've just said is that you you want to be, uh, you know, the plant-based consumption for, for people right now, uh, but always be willing to, to move and to change and to innovate. So I love that. I think that's wonderful advice amongst a lot of really great tips that you've shared. Um, I love your your journey, your brand story, and um, it's been wonderful having you on the show, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Sam Denigan from Strong Roots. You can find out more at strongroots.com. 
And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 140. Now for some vegan business news highlights. Now, the first news item is a new initiative that I've launched. It's called the Plant Powered Women's Network, and it's a global membership-based ethical leadership community for vegan and plant-based women. At the time of recording this podcast, which is early April 2020, it's in pre-launch mode to see if there's enough interest and take-up to enable me to raise funds to officially launch the platform in June. And just as a segue, that's a little tip for you as a a vegan business owner to test the market to make sure that uh, there is a market for your products or services. Now, due to the current COVID-19 coronavirus crisis we're currently in, my plan is to kick off with an online membership platform that will offer exclusive live webinars and interviews with inspiring, fascinating, brilliant vegan and plant-based women from the worlds of business, corporate, NGOs, finance, lifestyle, entertainment, spirituality, health, politics, and more, along with some virtual networking events, uh, online training and events, and carefully curated content and resources. Now, once we're out of this current um, global pandemic crisis, then we're looking to do some live events and a leadership program and possibly some mentorship uh, opportunities as well. And the network is for vegan and plant-based women who are committed to becoming ethical leaders in their field. So whatever that that means for you, it could be your local community, your business community, uh, whatever that means for you. And that includes developing skills for self-leadership. The early bird membership for founding members is just 99 US dollars for the year, which works out at about $8 a month or $2 a week, and will start when the platform officially launches. So far, I am really, really heartened by the response. Most of the major vegan media outlets have covered the story, including Veg News, Plant Based News, Veg Economist, Veg World, and The Beat. Plus, the amazing and renowned TV journalist Jane Velez Mitchell, who's one of my longtime inspirations and role models, interviewed me on her Facebook Live show recently and has joined as a founding member. So, that was a personal little highlight for me. I was very excited about that. Now, I know some people may think that now is not the right time to launch something like this, especially with such uncertainty. A lot of people's incomes have gone down or they're losing their jobs or their businesses are struggling. But I feel it's actually the perfect time to do it because more than ever, we need ethical leaders who aren't afraid to challenge the status quo and create an equitable world for all. So if this is something you feel you'd like to invest in and you're in a position to do so, then I invite you to join as a founding member. And if you're not able to join right now, please share the link to join among your networks. You can find the link on the Vegan Business Media website at veganbusinessmedia.com and it's also on the show notes page for this episode. A Billion Veg is an app that's helping animals and restaurants and is particularly valuable during this coronavirus crisis. I recently became an ambassador for A Billion Veg because I love the idea. It's so simple. Basically, the app donates one US dollar for every review of a vegan meal eaten at a restaurant to animal sanctuaries and other animal rescue and advocacy organisations. 
So whenever you're at a restaurant and you order a completely vegan dish, you simply take a photo. Only reviews with your own photos are eligible for donations, so that's important. You then upload it to the app, write a short review. It's 50 character minimum, which is literally just one short sentence, and post it on the app. And then basically... Uh, these animal sanctuaries and other organizations get a dollar for every review that you write. Now, obviously, at the moment, we're in lockdown uh, due to the coronavirus and restaurants aren't open for dining in. But you can go through photos on your phone from previous visits to those restaurants and you can post those with your review. Now, the good news is there's no limit to the number of reviews you can post. So the more reviews you post, the more donations to organizations helping animals. And of course, you're also helping vegan eateries who are doing it tough right now, as good reviews will encourage others to order from them when they're able to open back up properly. Now, my referral code is my name in all capital letters and with no space in between my first and last name. So download the app, A Billion Veg, from the Apple or Android stores and create an account. It's completely free. Where it says referral code, just type in Katrina Fox, all capitals and again, no space between the first and the last name. As a brand ambassador, I receive a small commission depending on the number of reviews you post, but I'm donating 100% of this um, to the animal sanctuaries. So it's a win all round. And again, I've put a link to this uh, to a billion veg on the show notes page. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. I hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you like the show, please give it a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, as it helps to get it seen by more people. There are more free resources on the veganbusinessmedia.com website to help you in your quest to build and sustain a successful business. And if you'd like to work with me personally on promoting and growing your vegan business or brand, you'll find details on how to do this on the website at veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the Work With Me menu link. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 